Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in March. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Bryan, Ohio's hospital is losing money, making it vulnerable to big health systems, seeking domination, and Phil Ennin, CEO, has been fighting to preserve its independence. Meanwhile, Bryan, a town of 8,500 people in Ohio's northwest corner, still trying to recover from the Great Recession. By following the struggle for survival of one small-town hospital and the patients who walk or are carried through its doors, Brian Alexander's new book, The Hospital, takes readers into the world of the American medical industry. Americans are dying sooner, living in poorer health, and Alexander argues that no plan will solve America's health crisis until the deeper causes of that crisis are addressed. Brian Alexander uh, joins us on the program. Thanks for joining us. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Good, good to be with you. Uh, I know you're on on the uh, essentially kind of the virtual tour here, giving a lot of interviews. So we appreciate you taking time for us. No, it, it, it's a good opportunity, and I like to uh, talk to the people of Utah. What a beautiful spot! Yeah, <laughs> I wish I was skiing there right now. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully soon, right? Yeah. Um, so you're uh, are you talking to us from uh, San Diego? I am. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there in San Diego, I know you were uh, born and raised in Ohio, but uh, how did you get connected to Bryan, Ohio, and, and to this hospital? I did a story for uh, The Atlantic, uh, where I'm a c- contributing editor, on the struggles of small-town hospitals to survive in a consolidating environment. Uh, there are about 600 or so hospitals at risk of closing in the United States because it's hard for them to make a living. Uh, and I interviewed the CEO of the hospital in Bryan, a fellow named Phil Ennin. Uh, the story came out. Phil called me up and he said, you know, you ought to come to our town and just have a look around and see how we are managing to keep our doors open. So I flew to Bryan and uh, spent four days there exploring. Uh, and I came away thinking that this was an opportunity to use the town of Bryan, uh, Williams County, and the hospital itself as a lens through which I could view um, American inequality and American sickness. And I don't mean just uh, ill health in the literal sense. Uh, It's my belief that America itself has a number of pathologies that are all getting bundled together in a kind of nationwide sickness. And Sure enough, I felt that I was able to get my arms around this one small place. And by doing that, I could illuminate the bigger picture. So tell us first a little bit about Brian. This is less, fewer than 10,000 people. Um, Yep. And and, uh, so I guess it survived, (laughs) uh, you know, skin of its teeth through the 2008 uh, Great Recession? Barely. Uh, it, you know, so Brian is a, a place of small manufacturers, things like plastics injection molding, metal stamping, that sort of thing. And they supply auto builders in uh, Detroit, Toledo, Indiana. Uh, and when the Great Recession of 2008-2009 hit, it landed on top of uh, over 30 years of gradual decline. And then... All at once, uh, they faced this disaster. Uh, The unemployment rate in Williams County was over 17% uh, during that period of time. And a lot of those jobs have never come back, and and it doesn't look like they are going to come back. They have been replaced by oftentimes lower-wage jobs. 
And so the median income there now, after adjusting for inflation, is lower than it was in 1980. So people are poorer. Uh, the population has been declining gradually. Um, it's a lovely place and uh, some really great people there. Uh, but they're really facing some economic headwinds. And this is affecting people's health in a number of ways. Uh, and I explore those ways in the book. Uh, I want to read just a couple sentences here. This is, uh, you talk about Pastor Greg Coleman. Um, and you say that he was torn between loving small communities. Uh, we're talking, uh, West Unities is where he is, I think, 1,600 people. Yes. Um, torn between that, loving small communities, and recognizing that many of these small communities have been turned into zombie places where the old and established finished out their lives, the young escaped if they could, and nomads passed through. And there's anxiety, depression, self-medication. Um, so that's an interesting lens to, to view the problems, you know, not only in, in these areas in Ohio, but many small communities. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, in a sense, the book isn't really about Bryan or Williams County or this one hospital. It's about the United States. You know, they, these uh, Bryan and the hospital and the Williams County, they really are avatars for what's happening all over the United States. It could have been any one of a thousand places. Um, my previous book, Glass House, took place in a town in Ohio, Lancaster, Ohio, where I happen to have grown up, um, and it faces some of the similar, uh, some of the same issues uh, for somewhat different reasons. So we have really spent the last 40 years damaging uh, some of our smaller communities as we all migrate toward the coasts and toward bigger cities. And that has led to a lot of bad things, uh, which I explore in the book. So, Pastor Coleman, uh, he, you, you have a passage here. He recognizes that a lot of people, a, a, a bunch of people, they're just hoping they can make it to the end of the week, right? There's no long-range planning. Oh, no. Uh, people can't afford to uh, plan for a long time. You know, I, I quote another person in the book, Valerie, who works three jobs and gets about uh, five hours of sleep a night. And she talks about how, you know, the first week after she gets a paycheck, the family, the family eats okay that week. The second week, uh, she calls it a bit of a straggler. Uh, they scrounge around for, uh, you know, leftovers and so on for the next week. And she's doing better than a lot of people are. A lot of people, they just want to make sure they've still got $1 in the pocket um, by the end of the week because they are really working for, for lousy wages. Uh, really, it's my view that a lot of people in places like Williams County are now being viewed as a kind of extractive industry, almost like coal is viewed in uh, Appalachia. We, we are extracting money from them, and we are also extracting their labor, and we're not giving much back. So Valerie's working several jobs, I think? Yep. And, yep. and she's, she's, Yeah, she was building furniture. Uh, she's a, uh, that's her full-time job. She has two part-time jobs. One is a school bus uh, monitor, and one as a caretaker for a retired gentleman. And I think she's getting, what, five hours of sleep at night or something? That's right, five hours of sleep at night. Uh, she's got a child. Uh, she's married. Uh, and together, she and her husband bring home about forty-six, forty-seven thousand dollars $47,000 a year. When I first interviewed her, I asked her, I said, look, do you, uh, you, know, do you regularly go to doctors? And she laughed. 
like that was the most ridiculous question she'd ever heard in her life. And she said, oh, no, we have to be dying before we go to see a doctor. So I said, how much money do you have right now in your checking account? She took out her checkbook. She had $67 in her checking account. So she was one dead car battery away from being broke. And that describes a lot of folks, right? There's just Absolutely. one emergency away. Yeah. Yep, uh, that's uh, right. And when you have uh, you know, employer health insurance for which you kick in a lot for the premium on, for, out of your own paycheck, and then the deductible is $5,000, for a lot of these people, that might as well be $5 million. Uh, there's a, a, see, a brief scene in the book. Uh, it's really struck me. Uh, the, the people at the hospital are are, are kind of uh, dumbstruck that uh, this lady had uh, dr- driven her husband in. They said, what, why didn't you use the ambulance? She said, I can't afford an ambulance. That's right. Uh, the, her husband was quite literally dying uh, of lung cancer. Uh, in, it, it, it would be hard to describe uh, his physical condition. Uh, he was barely conscious. But somehow she managed to get him in the car and drive him to the emergency room and the doctor and the head nurse on duty at the time looked at each other like they couldn't believe it, that somehow she managed to get him there. Because the, the ambulance costs money. Yeah, yeah, that's what she said. I, I can't afford it. Just drove him in. Um, so you say that um, the, the hospital, you know, hospital is often the focus in a community. The hospital is only a, a small part of the whole medical uh, picture, right? There's and there's economic forces, social forces, uh, some of which we've been talking about here that that uh, have a big effect. Absolutely, <clears throat> really, uh, only about fifteen to twenty percent of <clears throat> health outcomes in our country depends on direct medical care. Uh, about eighty percent of our health outcomes really depends on what are called the social determinants of health, where we live, how much money we make, what kind of education we receive. So here's a stark example, and it's really one of the, one of the facts that somebody uh, told me that I later confirmed uh, that really convinced me uh, that this book was absolutely necessary to write. Uh, Bryan, Ohio, as you pointed out, is a small town. About 8,500 people live within the city limits. And if you counted the little outlying areas, basically 10,000 people. A main street goes right down the middle of town. And as it happens, the Census Bureau divides Bryan into two different census tracts, one on each side of Main Street. Now, Bryan is like 98% white, so people are very homogenous. The people who live on the east side of town, the poor working class side of town, they die eight years sooner of cancer than people who have cancer on the west side of town. So just the fact of where they live means that they're going to die eight years faster if they get cancer. So in this country, wealthy people live about 13 years longer than poorer people live. Uh, Money is a stark dividing line. Yeah, that's that is pretty stark. <clears throat> um, I was reading a um, there's a, a study by the National Academies. I just want to quote from this Kathleen Mullen Harris from University of North Carolina, chair of the committee that wrote the report. Uh, says we're losing more and more Americans in the prime of their lives, in their most productive years, in their parenting years, 
that this is, I mean, they're, they're calling it, I'm not, I don't know if they use the word crisis, but it's, uh, they're calling this a pretty stark uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, Americans are dying faster. In other words, our mortality rate is increasing, our life expectancy is decreasing, and our health is decreasing. Other countries who we would consider our peer countries, you know, France, Germany, Canada, Britain, you know, Western industrialized countries, their life expectancy is increasing. Americans are dying faster. And along the way, we are paying far more money for health care than any of the people in those countries are paying. So this idea that we somehow have a great health care system, A, we have no system, and B, it's lousy. We have great technology, and we have fantastic science, but getting people that help and getting people the help they need before they ever get sick, uh, we're very bad at that. Unfortunately, in our country, hospitals, doctors, they don't get paid till somebody's sick. They don't get paid to keep people well. And in this country, hospitals depend on the sick and the dying and the people in ill health. So to get to a better system or to get to a system, uh, is, is that of necessity government run? That's what happens in a lot of countries. Uh, ultimately, I think the government needs a much bigger... The government already plays a big role. Uh, but I think it, it does. I was not necessarily a Medicare for all guy going into this book, um, but something like that is going to have to be the only solution. We cannot keep having this um, for-profit uh, kind of bizarre mix of capitalism and socialism we've got now. We already have socialism. Um, so, for example, in Bryan, Ohio, uh, that Williams County went 72% for Donald Trump. It's an extremely conservative county. They would condemn any hint of socialism anywhere. But the hospital in Bryan, Ohio, is the largest employer in Bryan. It is really the economic engine for the town at this point. And two-thirds of the revenue of that hospital comes from Medicaid and Medicare. So they are dependent upon government payments. As Phil Ennin, the CEO, uh, would often say, he said, if you're against socialized medicine, you're way too late. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. Um, uh, and I, I think of your dedication to your book. Uh, I'm going to read it. To the memory of Bruce Alexander, writer, who kept waiting to see a doctor until his Medicare kicked in. That's, that's right. That was my brother. That's your brother, um, yeah. who, who died of uh, a heart attack uh, just as I was beginning to uh, report on this book. And when I went through his belongings, I found a, a, a journal he was doing on the computer, and he had been having some chest pains, but he had retired a little bit early to, to write. He was a playwright um, and began to feel these chest pains. He was now without health insurance. And he said, well, you know, next year or two years from now, my Medicare is going to kick in. I'm going to see a doctor then and see what's going on. But he never made it. And I'm sure he's not the only one, right? Did he hold on until oh, we no. can get uh, Medicare? No, there right? are many people like my brother. You know, there, in Williams County, for example, there are a lot of people uh, ever since the Great Recession who have not gone in for colonoscopies. They've not gone in to have that very critical exam 
and uh, they are now seeing, as a result, higher rates of colon cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, Brian Alexander, the new book is The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. We'll have more following this. Hanging baskets and planters look beautiful early in the growing season and make an amazing addition to any yard or garden. However, by the time the heat arrives in late June or July, they can struggle and suffer without proper care and eventually find a new home in the compost pile. The secret recipe to keep your hanging baskets and planters looking beautiful all summer requires only a few simple steps. Fertilize, hydrate, and repeat. Use a water-soluble or liquid fertilizer every three to four days and hydrate the soil completely on a daily basis. Use a soil penetrant or hydrating agent if your baskets dry out too fast. Consistent watering, a regular fertilizer regimen, and your persistence can make all the difference in a gorgeous planter or an early addition to the compost heap. Support for The Garden Spot comes from Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. And Utah Public Radio is also supported by USU, by Utah State University MBA, offering flexibility to balance work, family, and community with an executive MBA program. Classes are held once a week at locations across Utah and Rexburg, Idaho. Information at HuntsmanMBA.com. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in March. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Brian Alexander. He's author of... most recently of the hospital, life, death, and dollars in a small American town. Uh, he follows the struggle for survival of one small town hospital and the patients who walk or carry it through its doors. And by doing so, he takes us into the world of the American medical industry. Uh, so you're welcome to join this conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, if you would uh, like. So, Brian Alexander, I want to get into some specifics of, uh, of the, this particular hospital, but um, the pandemic has been a real stress test for the, the whole you know, the medical uh, industry, the medical system. Uh, seems like uh, Hospital O'Brien has, has come through it, but uh, maybe you could talk about what... Uh, what stressors uh, the, the, the pandemic has put on the whole medical uh, industry? Everything I write about in the first three-fourths of the book um, sort of comes to fruition in the last fourth of the book, which covers the pandemic. Uh, the, the COVID pandemic has really exposed the fault lines not only in the medical care in this country, but in our social and economic life. Uh, We have lost, what, 540,000, 550,000 people right now. I I think people, we've tended over the course of the pandemic to be numb to that number. It's an astonishing, over half a million people have been killed by this. it is a massive failure on a number of fronts. America, other than the vaccines, which are a great triumph, uh, and that was a great international cooperative effort, uh, there's not a whole lot to be proud of uh, as far as the national response. 
to COVID. It's no accident that um, poor people, um, black and brown people, working class people are dying at much faster rates and more often than uh, wealthier white people are. And so why is that? Well, we have this bizarre thing in this country now. We're talking, we're all applauding our essential workers. We're applauding them. We're, you know, way to go to our grocery store cashiers, to our nurses, to our delivery people. Uh, um, these are people who keep us going. And yet we just turned down an opportunity to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And at $15 an hour, these people are still going to be poor. The national minimum wage right now is $7.50. Uh, people who make uh, $13 an hour, $14 an hour, they're actually making less money than they would have been making in 1980 when adjusted for inflation. So we're calling them essential, but we certainly are not treating them as essential. Meatpacking workers are another good example. You know, we said we, all the meatpacking workers are super essential, and we applaud them. They have to go back to work so that we can be uh, provided with food. But we certainly didn't take care of them, and so they're dying. Um, this is the kind of inequality that COVID has really starkly exposed, and that's what the hospital is really about. I want to talk about the the hospital and the the CEO uh, Phil Ennen. Um, it's, it's interesting. There, there's a passage in the book where I can't remember who it is. The maybe the top administrators of the hospital are are recognizing that the hospital is maybe the uh, leading institution in the town, and and they recognize that maybe we shouldn't be right, but but they know they are uh, the big, right. biggest employer, right? Yeah, and it used to be um, businesses. So there was a really big business there called Aero, A-R-O. Um, most people probably wouldn't have heard of it, but Aero made pneumatic pumps and so on. So grease guns and gas stations was one of their things. But they branched out into the automotive and the airline and even um, the space industry. They were a NASA contractor uh, to make like circulating pumps and that sort of thing. They employed over 2,000 people in Bryan, which again is a town of only 8,500 people. So they were a massive employer. They got caught up in the um, post-1980s takeover and merger craze, and Arrow basically shut down in Bryan, Ohio, and the jobs that were there um, were moved to a right-to-work state down in the Carolinas. So, um, so they left. That was a massive blow. There were, I go through a few other companies um, in Williams County, who uh, the way we have structured our economy, um, nothing is secure for people anymore. Uh, and the institution that is left standing is the hospital. This is true in many, many towns like Bryan. It's true in Lancaster, Ohio, where my last book was set. Hospital is the largest employer. Um, our health care providers really were never meant to be the economic engines of our town. But you see it over and over again. You know, even in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, for example, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center is a gigantic healthcare corporation at this point. It's the largest landowner in Pittsburgh. It has enormous power in Pittsburgh. Um, and that is an economic driver there. In Toledo, it's ProMedica, a big healthcare system. In Fort Wayne, Indiana, it's Parkview Healthcare System. These are gigantic uh, healthcare companies. And once again, 
even though their mix is a little bit different, an awful lot of their revenue actually comes from the government. So the hospital in Bryan, uh, it faces the pressures that uh, many small hospitals do. Um, it's uh, it's a nonprofit, as as you say, sixty percent of hospitals are. But but it's a business nonetheless, right? You 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 can't keep losing money all the time. That's right. And so this is the essential tension that is at work for nonprofit hospitals. They they are there for a mission. They're 501c3 charities most often. Uh, They're often governed privately. Uh, And yet, in order to survive, they've got to act like a business. And so what you end up having uh, is this drive to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And the reason they're trying to grow bigger is because they need to be able to stand up against, for example, insurance companies because they negotiate reimbursement rates with health insurers. And the bigger they are and the more market domination they have in their areas, the more negotiating power they have against insurance companies, and they can extract higher reimbursements from them. And so it becomes a kind of self-perpetuating cycle where they need to grow bigger, so the insurance companies feel like they need to grow bigger, and then the providers, the, the people that make supplies, for example, hip replacement um, mechanics and knee replacement, drug companies, um, pharmacy benefit managers, they all feel like they need to get bigger. And so what we have now is a rapidly consolidating healthcare landscape where fewer and fewer outfits are controlling more and more of our healthcare. Now, you say that uh, the hospital in Bryan is uh, surprisingly good for, for, for its size. How so? Well, it is. And, you know, a town of only 8,500 people, for example, they have a radiation oncology center. That's rare for a town that size. They have uh, several specialists. They have a GI specialist, a gastrointestinal specialist. They have a pain clinic specialist there. They have a wound care clinic specialist there. These sort of specialty clinics are not that common in a town the size of Bryan, Ohio. And that is part of the strategy that um, Phil Annan and, and the board and other executives that they created to try to fend off um, the in- incursion of these big healthcare systems because they're trying to keep people local uh, and going to their hospital rather than having to drive for example, to Toledo or to Fort Wayne to get these kinds of services. What would happen, what, or what does happen when a small hospital like this gets uh, gobbled up by a bigger system? And what would happen if they got gobbled up by the system in Fort Wayne or, or Toledo? Well, so let's say that they were gobbled up by Parkview out of uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Well, the, most of the doctors would probably stay, uh, and most of the nursing staff would probably stay. But to make a hospital run, you have food service people, janitorial people, you have billing and back office people. Most of those positions would all go away because they would be run out of Fort Wayne, or they would be contracted out, like janitorial service, for example, would probably be contracted out. Uh, so... you would lose an awful lot of jobs. Uh, You might also lose specialties. So, um, for example, there is a heart uh, catheterization lab at at the hospital in Bryan, Ohio. 
Um, and the doctor who was uh, manning that lab was actually a Parkview doctor. So what Parkview could do uh, when it came time for him to retire, Parkview could say, you know, we're not going to hire another um, heart cath specialist to go to Bryan. We're going to force people to come into Fort Wayne for that kind of stuff. Uh, so the, that way Fort Wayne exerts control. And so that uh, income would also be lost inside Bryan. So it would have both health and economic effects. Uh, chapter 6, the subtitle, well, the title is What Free Market? And the subtitle, The Myth of Free Market Medicine. Uh, talk to me about that, the, the myth of there's free market no, medicine. There, there's, there's no free market medicine. And, and the more that um, medicine is consolidated in this country, the, the less free market medicine there is. Um, you know, when people, let's take emergency room care for an example. So if I feel like I'm having a heart attack or, you know, I break a leg, I'm not going to hop on the phone and start to comparison shop. I'm going to want to know where the nearest emergency room is, and I want to go there. And I'll probably get pretty good care there. But the doctors inside that emergency room probably do not work for the hospital itself. They are probably subcontractors, and the company... Uh, which does actually employ them, may very well be owned by a private equity outfit, a Wall Street investor. And they are not subject to the um, insurance contracts. And so they could very well be out of network for my insurance. And they could charge me whatever they wanted to. And in fact, they often do. So this was what the whole controversy about out-of-network billing was all about. Now, that's not a free market. The consumer has no control there at all. I just want to go and get my broken leg taken care of or, or have my heart attack treated. Um, and they can charge me whatever they want, and that's exactly what they do. So we talked earlier about the, the woman who drove her husband in, and he was quite literally dying, right? Uh, you're, you call, mm -hmm. call him Roger Metzger, not his real name, I believe. Um, but uh, let me quote a couple of lines here. Uh, the CEO of the hospital, Phil Ennin, couldn't be sure his shop would be paid for Roger Metzger's care. The insurance came with high deductibles, sometimes as much as $5,000. Uh, you go on to talk about how um, the, uh, the administrators, nurses and doctors, often held meetings about how to evade strict interpretations of payment schemes so they could care for their patients. And the concepts of bad debt and charity care were complex concepts. These are all... Uh, forces that the I guess the hospitals are are having to deal with all over. Yeah, bad debt is a big issue, uh, especially for uh, community hospitals. Um, people can't afford to use their own insurance oftentimes because they do come with such high deductibles. And as I said, you know, to, to a person who's making thirteen dollars an hour in Bryan, Ohio, a five thousand dollar deductible might as well be five million dollars. So what they end up doing is not paying the hospital bill, uh, and um, and that leaves the hospital two choices. They can either sue for it uh, and garnish wages and so on, which in the case of CHWC is not something they like to do, or they can try to write it off as bad debt. Now, the government does have a formula that helps compensate somewhat for bad debt, but it doesn't really cover all the debt. And so you've got to account for an awful lot of bad debt in cases like this. And that, of course, hurts the bottom line.
And these uh, high deductibles, I mean, insurance, I guess that insures against, I don't know, bankruptcy, catastrophic, uh, you know, but the high deductibles, that I, I would think it discourages people from going in or delaying, at least. Oh, uh, sure it does. It, it, it always discourages people. You know, deductibles were, we did not used to have insurance deductibles when we started first started having health insurance in this country, there, there weren't deductibles. Um, but then we, we got this concept of skin in the game. People said, oh, they're going to abuse their insurance. They're just going to go for every little thing. And, and so we got to make people pay something so that they have some skin in the game so they don't just abuse the insurance. Well, that was a myth to start out with. But it has since grown as a way to try to keep premiums down and put more of the burden on the consumer. Well, they certainly have put a lot of burden on the consumer. But as an insurance broker in Brian told me, and it's her business, I mean, this is it's her business. She says this is not sustainable. Um, people cannot afford the insurance because the premiums are going up, and then they can't use it once they do have it. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, talk about maybe the, some some of the the people that you that you meet to kind of illustrate these concepts. Uh, very interesting. Maybe talk about uh, Keith. Uh, uh, is his name Swihart? Swihart. Swihart. Yeah. To talk about him and and I keep referencing the CEO. A very interesting fellow, Phil in and talk a little bit about him when we come back. Uh, we're talking with. Uh, Brian Alexander, the new book is The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. We'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and INL National Laboratory, celebrating pride throughout the month of June. INL values the many contributions those who identify as LGBTQ make at the laboratory and in the community. More information on inclusive careers is online at INL. Hi, I'm Natalie Gawkner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW, a weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we walk through the gate of summer by visiting three cooks in three very different parts of the country to see what June tastes like for them. We'll hear about the shrimp of coastal Georgia, the salmon of Alaska, the preserves of Appalachia, and more. Coming up on The Splendid Table. Tune in Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in March. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, Brian Alexander. His most recent book is called The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. And uh, he looks at America's healthcare system through the lens of uh, the hospital in the small town, Bryan, Ohio. Uh, so, Brian Alexander, tell us about uh, Keith Swihart, central figure in, in the book. Keith uh, is a young man. Uh, to me, he's young anyway. He was 39 when uh, I first met him. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Keith over the course of a year. 
Keith was a hard worker. His first job was at age 13, detasseling corn, which is pretty common uh, among rural people in the in the Midwest. I used to do it. Um, and but then he worked uh, in various um, positions, often in auto-related uh, industries, uh, and he worked all his life. Uh, he eventually uh, was diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, In the course of that, he found that as his diabetes progressed and as he aged, the cost of his insulin kept rising and rising and rising. So he wound up often not using his insulin in favor of saving that money to provide for his family. He was married, had a small child. His wife was also um, uh, an obese woman who... uh, wound up having medical problems of her own. Uh, so I follow their track. And the, the point of following Keith is that Keith represents millions of people uh, in our country. Um, many of us don't like to think about it, but we are often one diagnosis away from a cascade of events that could send us into bankruptcy or death or losing our homes. And I did. I spoke to other people in Bryan who got a bad diagnosis and wound up having to sell their homes. Um, As Elizabeth Warren often likes to point out, uh, medical care is the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. We have people in this country now who tell doctors, and this is true in Williams County, uh, who tell doctors that it's okay, doc, uh, just let me die. I can't afford it. Uh, and Keith is in this position. And so readers, uh, the point of Keith is that it, I needed to have um, put a human face on some of these issues that we're talking about. I want people to get to know Keith uh, because he is kind of typical in many ways. And um, it's only through a human story um, that we really feel uh, how these systems affect us. Uh, I could talk about policy all day, but there are a lot of healthcare policy books out there. There's almost no policy, really, inside this book. This is a human-scale story about real people. Tell me about uh, Phil Ennin. He, he's the guy who invited you to, to, to come and tell his, the story of his hospital, right? He is. Phil is uh, a bit of a maverick. Um, he has kept the hospital going by hook or by crook for 32 years. He's worked at the hospital. He was the CEO starting in 2007, if I remember correctly. Uh, and he, has, he became an expert at sort of navigating the little bizarre, crazy um, jumble of regulations and rules and so on to, um, to keep that place open. Uh, and um, readers can follow along his story. Um, he ends up um, having to address his style of management uh, and and the way he does things in the book. So it's a rather dramatic story involving Phil. Uh, the point is that um, there really is in American healthcare, and. You know, since the book has come out just yesterday, I've had emails from healthcare people all over the country uh, who have uh, already read the book. And they have said, you know, I'm either thinking about leaving healthcare altogether or you really nailed how, just how crazy it is. 
that we have to go through all these hoops and, and weird grifts just so that we can help patients. So, you know, a, a good classic example, and this was true in the little um, hospital in Bryan, nurses will actually fudge um, some data for insurance companies. So if, if you can walk 50 feet, um, the insurance company is going to say that you can be released from the hospital. And yet the nurses and the doctors know that you shouldn't be released from the hospital, but the insurance company is going to pay anymore. So they will say to the insurance company, yeah, she, we, we tested her and she still can't walk 50 feet. Well, they're fudging that. Or they will try to figure out where they can get some free samples of a drug so they can tide people over. People are trying to figure out workarounds because the system itself is so messed up. Uh, I wonder, uh, you, you put a human face on this, right? And it's illustrating, mm-hmm. but what it's illustrating is um, not good, right? No. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> so I wonder how you come, come out of, at the end of this journey, um, what, what your feeling is. That can, can this be fixed? Uh, as you point out, uh, the U.S. is, we're, we're not doing very well. No, we are not doing very well. Um, you know, look, I, I, there's the realistic part of me, and then there's the hopeful part of me. I hope that people will read the hospital and realize that finally we need to solve this problem. But solving the problem would mean uh, economic disruption. There's no doubt about that. Healthcare is now the largest part of the American economy, and you can't blow all that up without realizing that people are going to be displaced. If we had a single national health plan, what about all those people who work for insurance companies? Now, personally, I feel like the pain of blowing it up will be worth it in the long run. But it would be um, billions of dollars of lobbying and so on by vested interests who are already getting rich out of this system who don't want it to be blown up. Um, you know, I describe the healthcare system as a, as a maze in which money is hidden, and experts uh, become very, very good at finding where the money is hidden. The average consumer doesn't have any idea how that works. So, it, so it, you know, here's another good example. So we, we were very concerned about a year ago. We said, we're going to end surprise billing, especially in emergency rooms, as I, as I just discussed, there was bipartisan support for that. I mean, nobody really disagrees with that. But uh, private equity companies spent millions of dollars in lobbying. They formed a front group uh, that sounds like it was for patients, but wasn't really. Uh, and they lobbied hard, and they managed to defeat that. And there was very little disagreement that that was a good thing to do among either Republicans or Democrats, but it was defeated. So imagine if we said we're going to blow up the whole system. Just imagine the pushback there would be for that. I hope we do. I hope we finally gather the courage to blow it up and start over. Other countries do this better than we do, and we need to learn from them. So putting aside the politics, putting aside the likelihood or probability uh, if we blew it up, the the new system, what, would be uh, Medicare for all? Something like that, yeah. I mean, you know, there are a lot of, of subtle variations. 
uh, so the, the details, you know, the devil's in the details. But it would be something like a Medicare for all. You know, we already have a system in this country, uh, several systems. One is Medicare. One is the VA. We have a whole VA system. Now, you can say the VA system has troubles. Of course it does. Every system has troubles. There isn't a country who has any kind of health care system that doesn't have troubles. But you work through those troubles. You try to, you try to make it as good as you can. Um, any of those systems would be an improvement on what we've got now. Uh, we know how to do this. We, we do. I, I asked um, people in uh, this, and I want to remind people, this is a very conservative part of Ohio. And I would say to them, uh, an employer, for example, I would say, look, let's say that tomorrow the government said, you no longer have to provide health insurance for your employees. And it costs these companies a fortune to do that. But we're going to take that burden away from you. On the other hand, we're going to raise your taxes a little bit to help pay for that. Would you take that deal? And even in this part of conservative Ohio, people said, absolutely, I would do it in a heartbeat. Um, I asked hospital administrators. I said, look, what if the government said, uh, we're going to take your last five years of expenses, we're going to average it out, and we're just going to give you a grant to operate your hospital. And then we'll review uh, your costs and so on uh, every on some sort of regular schedule, and you will just operate on a grant from the government to operate your local hospital in your local way to satisfy your local needs with our government grant. Would you take that deal? And they all said, absolutely. Yeah, so there, I guess there's the outlines of, uh, of something, right? Yeah. If we were to I get mean, there, imagine yeah. if we, mm-hmm. most of the drugs prescribed in this country right now are generic drugs. In other words, they're off patent. But there are for-profit companies making those drugs, and they can charge what they want for them. So, for example, a thyroid medication that I'm familiar with, uh, it used to cost uh, $7.50 a month. So that's not a lot of money. Uh, But then it went up to $15 a month. That's a 100% increase overnight, and millions of people take that drug, and they are often on government programs like Medicaid. So Medicaid is having to pay for that. Well, what if the government said, the drug is off patent, we are just going to start government drug factories to make generic drugs. And we are going to charge the cost of production. So whatever it costs us to make the drug, that's going to be reflected in the price. So it's going to be no profit and no loss. Right off the bat, the system would save billions of dollars. Hmm. I just have uh, two or three minutes left in the conversation. I'm curious, uh, you, uh, you lived a year, did you, in, in Brian? Yep, uh, I did. Uh, I was there actually more than a year. Um, I would come back to California to take care of my house and pay my bills uh, about um, generally about once a month and then go right back uh, to Bryan. I rented a little house there and bought an old used Hyundai Accent with 140,000 miles on it uh, to navigate my way around. Um, I just got to know people. I, I embedded myself both in the hospital and in the community. So what's uh, what what's the big takeaway from a, from a year in Bryan? That's very very small community, I guess tight knit probably. I don't know. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, look, uh, America is in trouble. America is sick right now, um, and so is Bryan. Bryan is not worse or better than any other place. It has many of the same 
issues that many other places have. It's just a representative sample. Uh, but it is indicative of this broader national illness that we are facing in this country. And it's long past time that we realize we're suffering from it and do something about it. We've been running away from the realization now for 20 years. It's time that we stop running. We have to turn around and face it and do something about it. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. Brian Alexander is author of The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. It's out and available now. Uh, Brian Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the time you've given me. Next up, it's Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Tanya Gibson. I don't have a big sweet tooth. I never have. I didn't even like chocolate, the ultimate sugar cliche, until something shifted after I was pregnant. And I still, after 45 years on this planet, believe chips are a fine meal replacement, especially in the corn or tortilla families. I would rather have anything savory for breakfast over the sweet. Think hashes, eggs, burritos, tacos. But then, then there's caramel. I do love caramel. Caramel almost makes me rethink everything I believe about having a sweet tooth, as well as rethink everything I know about the universe. Caramel really is all the good within this world. And I'm an equal opportunity caramel lover as well. As long as there are no nuts anywhere near, anyway. Nuts belong elsewhere and never near my desserts. My first memories of caramel are equal parts binging bags of craft caramels around Halloween every year and my mom making her homemade caramel every Christmas. My love is so deep that I appreciated both and then anything else in between. Buttery, smooth, slightly harder, more chewy, deep in color, light and soft. To my tongue, it didn't matter. A quick internet search shows as many different recipes for caramel as there are people's opinions, it seems. Even though the basic ingredients, dairy, butter, and a cream of some type, sugar and vanilla, are mostly the same, there is something they all try to claim to make them stand apart or better from the rest. Looking over the first few in a list, some of the claims of better include swearing by a strict use of a candy thermometer, others by tossing the thermometer altogether and using the more old-fashioned eyeball it and see when it sets up on a cold spoon method, which my mom always employed. Some use traditional cream while others make a promise with sweetened condensed milk. And then each recipe will suggest turning it into a candy or glaze or sauce or to cover nuts and apples or their caramel will form the basis of various desserts, sundaes, cheesecakes, brulees. For such a simple candy, the varieties seem endless and I'm always anxious to try them all. One year on vacation, we found what has since become my favorite piece of caramel while standing in a checkout line in a bustling coastal Oregon town. These specific caramels melt in your mouth unlike any I've ever had, and unwrapping one makes my mouth water with anticipation, and their strong smell of sugar and cream conjures up a feeling of childishness in every possible good way. That trip had me consuming more than my fair share, and by the last bite of the very last one, I was already dreaming of having more and counting the days, all 600 plus of them, until I could have those caramels again. Our next trip to the coast brought disaster. The store we had first found them in was sold out. I talked to a couple of people and found the name of the small company that produced the Happy Sugar, but feared it would be another couple of years until I could try to find them again. Heartbroken, 
we made our way to the town where we would call home for the week and stopped into their tiny neighborhood grocery store to stock up. As I went to pay, my head caught the sight of a familiar box, and it took several seconds before it registered. My caramels, a box full of my caramels. I bought a handful of the cellophane-wrapped treasures and dropped them into our grocery bag. I had never been so happy to see something so sweet in my life. I've wondered over the years what made these caramels so good, so unusually good. I thought, perhaps, it was vacation brain morphing them into some kind of candy anomaly, but then, foisting them upon family upon our return, batted that theory down. I was assured they really were just that delicious. It was also apparent that I was not the only one addicted to these sugar confections, or that my equal opportunity status was in serious jeopardy after laying my hands on this specific variation. What I didn't find, however, was any explanation for their goodness. A secret spilled, an ingredient list divulged, it seems the mystery will remain, and those caramels will live long in my memory and foremost in future vacation plans. There seem to be differing theories of where caramel originated and how it became popular. The French, the Italians, Egyptians, and a smattering of origin stories stemming from the Middle East are all mentioned as possibilities. So, then, we owe not only a candy store tucked away in a small Oregon coastal town, but the world at large, a debt of gratitude for the greatest sugar this tortilla chipaholic has ever known. This is Tanya Gibson for Bread and Butter. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.